Good morning. Today is Thursday, January 27th, 2022. Why does our Parsha, the Parsha of Mishpatim, follow last week's Parsha, the Parsha of Yisro? Yisro, of course, the central narrative is the revelation at Sinai, and God speaks the Aseras Adibros, the Ten Commandments. And then we have our Parsha, which largely deals with the, the Jewish judicial system, both civil law and criminal law. But the subjects in our Parsha are not even alluded to in the Ten Commandments themselves. So clearly, the Aseris Hedibros, the Ten Commandments, are meant to be followed by the rest of the commandments. It's a question, and we've discussed this in the past, what is special about the Ten Commandments as opposed to all the other mitzvot in the Torah? Why are they listed here? That's a large and separate discussion. But clearly, those are not meant to be in any way comprehensive. We're, ob we're obligated to observe all the commandments. So clearly, uh, well, Presumably, the Aseris Adibros are some kind of uh, outline, let's say, and then you have to start with explicating one after the other in, in greater detail. So, why follow with this subject? Why not follow with, I don't know, laws of Shabbos? I don't know. Um, love your fellow as yourself. I don't know. Choose something else. Why why this choice? So there are a number of answers to this question, and I have shared answers in the past, and this is a different answer. I have the great privilege to teach Talmudic law at McGill University Faculty of Law. And I will share with you what I share every semester in the first class of this course. Alexander the Great was active around the time of 325 before the Common Era. And Alexander the Great, as you know, conquered most of the ancient world. And he defeated every country he invaded in order to conquer it, except for Israel. Now, that's especially important because Israel was at the crossroads of the ancient world. Anyone going from Europe to Asia, to Africa, Israel is the crossroad. And of particular strategic importance to conquer for anyone who wants to be able to move freely around the ancient world. And yet, Alexander the Great came to Israel, went through, and left in peace. Now, I don't know about Jews 
at that time in Greek sources. I'm not so knowledgeable about that. But I can tell you that Alexander the Great made a big impact on Jewish sources. Just to give one example, Alexander became a Jewish name. We ourselves are blessed with a Rabbi Alexander, Rabbi Alex. To my knowledge, and if you can think of another example, let me know. Alexander is the only name that starts out as a secular name and becomes a Jewish name. Yes, of course, Jews have all kinds of names like Michael and, you know, all sorts of names. But to give as a Jewish name Alexander, I can't think of any other example. Unprecedented, unique. Obviously, he was held in high regard. Now, the Gemara, the Talmud, records in great detail Alexander's arrival in Israel and a very famous story about what happened to him when he came. He met with Shimon Hatzadik, Simon the, the Just, who was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He was the highest spiritual leader of his time. You may remember we discussed Shimon Atzadik some time ago in a different context. And he met with other Jewish leaders. And he was impressed. He was impressed by the values that he saw there. By the morality that he saw within society. And Alexander the Great allowed Israel to live in peace, undisturbed, as he continued his conquering of the rest of the ancient world. What impressed Alexander so much? So, these Jewish leaders wanted to show him Jewish life, and they wanted to impress him. They understood what was at stake. They understood what he had done everywhere else, and they wanted to impress him. So think about this in your own minds for a moment. What do you think they would show him? What would you show someone like that? If someone came to your country, an important visitor who you were somewhat afraid of, but you wanted them to understand you and you wanted them to respect you, what would you show them? They took Alexander the Great to Betdin, to a Jewish court, to watch a trial that was taking place. And the details of this case are presented to us in the Gemara, in the Talmud, the Sakta Tamid. It was a civil case. Two people will make up names Reuven and Shimon. Two people were arguing over a buried treasure that had been found within the walls of a house. Reuven sold this house to Shimon. And Shimon, after he moved in, found a buried treasure in the walls of this house. 
So Shimon came to court and he said, I bought the house from Ruvain. I found a treasure there. I didn't know about it when I bought the house. I didn't pay for it. I paid for the house, not knowing there was some extra gigantic value hidden inside. And therefore, since I didn't pay for it, it doesn't belong to me. And I insist that Ruvain takes it back. Ruvain said, I refuse to take the treasure because I sold the house as is. I didn't know there was a treasure there, but when I sold it, my intention was to sell the house, and that includes whatever's included in it. And whatever is hidden was included in the price which I received, and therefore I refused to take the money. That's what these Jewish leaders showed off to Alexander. And that is what impressed Alexander with the refinement of society at that time. And Alexander was duly impressed. And he left Israel in peace. Law. There may be people who disagree with what I'm going to say now, but that's okay. I'm sharing my opinion. Law is the best way to understand Judaism. It is Judaism's most fundamental organizing principle. And also, law is the structure, the institution through which Judaism has had and continues to have the greatest impact on the world. Chaim Seiman is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University, an amazing scholar and a Torah scholar. And he wrote, law is the vehicle through which every category of Jewish wisdom is delivered. Law is much more than just rules and punishments for violating those rules. Law expresses our values, our priorities, who we are. And we see this deeper meaning of laws throughout our Parsha of Mishpatim. Let me share with you briefly one example. And this is an example that comes from Rabbi Avram Cook, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, great Torah scholar. Our parsha discusses several situations in which one person is holding on to an object for another person. For example, there is a Shomer Chinam. I say to you, would you please hold on to this for me for a while as a favor? Just watch it for me. I'm not paying you for it. So, our parsha tells us that you, holding on to my object, you are responsible to return it to me. You are not allowed to use it because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. I just ask you to hold on to it for me. 
if you are negligent, you have to pay me back. You leave it outside and somebody steals it, you're negligent, you're going to have to pay me back. But I didn't pay you to do it. Your level of responsibility to care for it is limited to negligence. There's another category called Shomer Sachar. I come to you and I pay you to watch my object. Well, in this case, of course, you bear a much higher level of responsibility because you're getting paid for it. You put something in a safe deposit box. You're paying for them to, to guard it, to watch it. Of course, not just negligence, but even a higher level, something happens to it, you're going to have to pay me back. Then there's a category of shoel. Shoel means you ask to borrow something from me. Now, this is a unique category because, number one, I'm not paying you to watch it. You even get to use it because that's what you're asking for. You're asking to borrow something of mine and you're not even paying me either. It's not like a rental. I'm doing you a favor. I'm lending something to you. Says the Torah. If a person borrows something and it breaks or dies, like an animal, the borrower must make full restitution. And the Talmud explains the borrower is accountable for every type of damage or loss, no matter whose fault it is. It could be a situation where it's completely unpreventable. Let's say, God forbid, I borrow an object from you and God forbid, let's say there's a tornado and my house is, God forbid, destroyed and your house is destroyed. God forbid. I have to pay you back the total value of what I borrowed. But it seems completely unreasonable because in my example, even if I would not have borrowed the object, you still would have lost it because this natural, natural disaster happened to both of us. Why is it that Torah law places such a great responsibility on paying back in this case, even in unpreventable accidents? Rav Cook explains the following. The Torah places extra liabilities on a borrower in order to encourage people to be helpful and lend to others. Because if somebody comes to me, I want to borrow your car, your shovel, your whatever it is. I know that under Torah law, no matter what happens, I'm going to get it back. And if anything happens to it, you're going to have to compensate me. So why not? Why not lend it? It's a tremendous incentive. I'm not losing anything. I'm not taking any chances. This is a detail of the law that on its surface seems unreasonable. And yet it facilitates acts of kindness, acts of altruism. Sure, I'll lend it to you. 
because I know that no matter what happens, I'm going to get it back. Laws are structured in their technical details to encourage chesed, acts of kindness, and helping others. And this is just one example. We could spend the next, not only hours, but weeks and months studying more examples from our parsha. The Talmud is filled with discussions of this nature. By not only punishing wrongdoers, but also by creating the values of Jewish society, law, in its widest sense, is the essence of Torah Judaism. And why our Parsha of Mishpatim, the Parsha of Laws, is the first subject to be elaborated on after God's momentous revelation at Mount Sinai. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful day. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.